Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of emotional abuse, drug use, and murder. Some names in this story have been changed to protect anonymity. Listener discretion is advised. Do you think <laughs> that I've I would have even thought about dating this person if I knew who he was? This is Method and Madness, episode 38, Rotten, Surviving Dirty John. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Revenge. Method. And madness. What do you think, would you say, is the biggest thing that these shows get wrong? The biggest thing that these shows get wrong is they're not really portraying that it can happen to anybody. I'm Deborah Newell. I had a very, very terrible chapter um, of my life. And it became a series on TV, then Netflix, and it's called Dirty John. You may have heard the podcast, watched Dateline with Keith Morrison, or seen the Bravo series starring Connie Britton and Eric Bana. And for those of you who don't know this case, you're in for a ride. It's the story of how John Meehan, better known as Dirty John, conned his way into the hearts and disrupted the lives of trusting women. How one woman, in particular, was raised to see the good in others, despite having experienced tragedy and loss at the hands of a family member. A woman who was seeking companionship and believed in true love and found that love at first sight— was a reality. It's how Dirty John wasn't at all who he said he was, this charming, successful doctor that he portrayed himself as. How it was revealed that it was all a lie. John had an end game in mind. And in order to get there, he'd do anything. Anything. This is how he used manipulation tactics and coercive control to get what he wanted. The methods he used, well, it was like he wrote the manual on manipulation. And his victims didn't even see it coming, because the truth is, it could happen to anyone. Yes, anyone. This kind of control, well, the perpetrator has honed their craft over time. They're skilled. They disarm you with their charm and know exactly how to gain control, to win your trust, to make you think you're the crazy one. This is also the story of how a survivor was villainized, blamed for what came down to being a victim and how a killing in broad daylight 
wasn't the ending she imagined in a million years. Here's a side of the story you may not know as I sit down with Dirty John's second wife, Deborah Newell, and her daughter, Tara Newell. I asked for them to share their experience, their survival, their healing. I hate to say any case is one of my favorites. It seems icky. These are real people, real pain and suffering, But this is definitely one that sticks out to me, particularly because of an ending that quite frankly blew my mind and still does. But before we get there, let's go back and get to know Dirty John. Let's dive in. It was Ray Liotta's Henry Hill in Goodfellas that said, For us to live any other way was nuts. To us, those goody-good people who worked shitty jobs for bum paychecks and took the subway to work every day and worried about their bills were dead. I mean, they were suckers. They had no balls. If we wanted something, we just took it. If anyone complained twice, they got hit so bad, believe me, they never complained again. John Meehan, Filthy John, or most notably, Dirty John, was a con man in training at a young age. Born February 3, 1959, to William and Dolores, John grew up in California along with his two sisters, Karen and Donna. His father ran the Diamond Wheel Casino in San Jose, and his parents divorced when John was in high school. Reportedly, it was his father that believed He was a descendant of infamous mafia boss Albert Anastasia, and according to John's sisters, Dad taught John to jump in front of cars and mix broken glass into his food at Taco Bell to win legal settlements. John was arrested as a teen for selling cocaine, and he ratted out a friend as part of a plea bargain. Still, he was a decent student and went on to obtain a Bachelor of Arts degree at the University of Arizona in 1988. It was later, while attending the University of Dayton School of Law, that he got his nickname, Dirty John, for the way he preyed on women. His college roommate said John was, quote, rotten, top to bottom. He was always pulling some scam or another, taking on miscellaneous odd jobs, getting paid for them, but not completing the work racking up charges on credit cards that he opened under fake names. John dropped out of law school when his grades weren't cutting it, and he married his then-girlfriend, Tanya Sells, in November 1990. They'd met at a bar after John had approached her and pursued her. He was loving and attentive, but the marriage was built on lies. John, 31 at the time of their wedding, told his 25-year-old bride that he was 26. And oddly, John didn't invite any of his family to the wedding, something that struck Tanya as strange, but she believed her groom when he said it was because of his dysfunctional family of addicts that he didn't want there. They'd just end up being an embarrassment. He invited only friends who served as his groomsmen. It was at their wedding that 
On video, friends revealed John's nickname was Dirty John, a fact that caught Tanya off guard later when she watched. He had shrugged it off at the time. It wasn't a big deal, just college friends ribbing each other. Tanya said this of John, as reported in Harper's Bazaar, quote, John had a way of talking you out of anything that your gut was telling you. Although I may have been naive, I wasn't shy. I would ask about things that I noticed, like his driver's license. The night we met, it had a different age than what he was saying, but he talked me out of that. He said he altered his birthday because he wanted to get alcohol in college and get into bars. I thought, well, I know about people who do that. He just had an answer for everything, and he was confident about it. Tanya, a practicing nurse anesthetist, encouraged John to attend nursing school. He did, and he received his certificate as a nurse anesthetist in Ohio, where the couple had settled down. They had two daughters, and in general, Tanya and John didn't really have marital issues. So Tanya was shocked when nine years into the marriage, John told her he wanted a divorce. It was sudden, and Tanya wasn't really getting an explanation from her husband. What she didn't realize was that John, being the master manipulator that he was, was ready to move on. He had gotten everything he needed from the marriage. So Tanya started doing some digging, trying to process why John went from loving husband to adamantly wanting to split up. He had never allowed Tanya to contact his family, always coming up with excuses for why he'd cut them off. But with the dissolution of their marriage, she was desperate for answers. She certainly wasn't getting them from her husband. And there was that feeling that there must be more to it. Something wasn't right. So one day she mustered up the courage and reached out to Dolores, John's mom, by phone someone she'd never even met, never spoken to. Turns out, Dolores wasn't surprised to hear from Tanya. In fact, she told her she knew that one day she would call. It was that call that was the snowball rolling down the hill. So much more was to come in the near and even distant future. Tanya learned for the first time that her husband of nine years wasn't who he said he was, that he had a history of lying and hiding things that anyone should be privy to before deciding to spend their life with someone else. He'd told Tanya his full name was Jonathan. It wasn't. He'd committed to lies throughout the marriage that would ultimately protect himself and prevent his wife from finding out the truth about his past. John Meehan was actually five years older than he said he was and had a drug charge from when he lived in California, which, of course, Tanya didn't know about. She also learned that he'd been having an affair with a woman in Michigan and essentially living a double life. It was also revealed that his sister Donna suspected that John had done the unthinkable. A few years earlier, in 1997, while John and Donna were visiting their dying father, who was in the care of hospice, Donna left the room briefly. It was in those few minutes that William Meehan had passed away, and Donna always suspected, though she couldn't prove it, 
that her brother had done something to speed up their father's death, possibly injecting him with a lethal dose of morphine as John was eager for that insurance payout. Armed with all of this info, Tanya started looking through their home into John's personal things and learned that he was hiding a serious drug addiction. She found an arsenal of drugs that John had stashed, Versed, a drug used before surgery to cause drowsiness, and fentanyl, an opioid that is 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Imagine discovering that the man you love, that you shared a home with and parented two children with, that he wasn't at all who you thought he was. That record scratch, that feeling in the pit of your stomach that you've been had. Was anything real? Any of the things he said? Any of his feelings? Tanya understood the severity of the drug situation. After all, John was a practicing nurse. She contacted the police to tell them about the surgical drugs that John was hiding in the home. And an investigation officially began in 2000. Meanwhile, John had lost his job. He'd been working at a hospital in Ohio, so he tried to move on to Indiana, but the state nursing board caught on to his devious behaviors. Reportedly, friends of Tanya's had contacted them. But John was convinced it was Tanya that was sabotaging his career, and thus began a series of threatening calls from him to his soon-to-be ex-wife. Tanya was smart. She remained calm during their conversations and even recorded them, as suggested by investigators. One excerpt from a call was as follows. When it happens, Tanya, and you see it in your eyes, remember it was me, okay? Tanya, you enjoy your time left on this earth, okay? Because that's what it's going to come down to. Thanks to those recordings, John was convicted of menacing and received a suspended sentence. Tanya had to get a protective order as she feared for her life. She had been John's victim throughout their marriage, the victim of coercive control, a term coined in the 1970s by psychologists and explained by criminal behavioral analyst Laura Richards, who has worked with John Meehan's victims in recent years. This type of manipulation is a theme that we'll visit throughout this episode. Here's a breakdown according to Laura's website. Coercive control, which is akin to brainwashing, is a strategic pattern of behavior designed to exploit, control, create dependency, and dominate. The victim's everyday existence is micromanaged, and her space for action as well as potential as a human being is limited and controlled by the abuser. Initially, love bombing and charm may occur to get the victim into the relationship. Gaslighting, isolation, economic control, and financial abuse and rules and regulations are gradually introduced over time once the victim is emotionally invested, as well as a consequence if they're broken. The rules apply to the victim rather than the perpetrator, creating a double standard, and the victim fears the consequence if she breaks a rule. 
Over time, coercively controlling behavior erodes the victim's sense of self, their confidence and self-esteem, agency and autonomy. The abuser creates an unreal world of contradiction, confusion and fear. Moreover, 51% of victims don't even know that they are being abused, manipulated and controlled. Coercive control correlates significantly to serious harm and homicide. John hadn't suddenly become a manipulator. He was such a master at his devious craft that Tanya didn't even realize she was being controlled. John had reached the point in his coercive control where he was using threats. The next few years painted a scary picture of who John was and the danger he was capable of. He brought a gun into an operating room where he worked, stole drugs from the same hospital, and stole a patient's container of urine in an attempt to use it as his own to pass a drug test. He lost his nursing license and his home was searched. There was at least 45 empty prescription drug containers and he pled guilty to felony drug theft. He then fled the state and hid out in a hotel in Michigan. When police tracked him down there, he was unconscious, drug vials everywhere. En route to the hospital by ambulance, he freed himself of his restraints, grabbed the drug kit, jumped out, and ran, police in tow. They caught up to him. He kicked a cop in the face before collapsing to the ground. It was like a scene from The Fugitive, except that John Meehan wasn't as brilliant as Richard Kimball. He wasn't even innocent, so I guess it was nothing like The Fugitive. John was sentenced to six years for drug possession and resisting arrest, but was released after serving 17 months. Here's an excerpt from a letter written by John while he was in prison to a friend. You don't even want to know what being in a Michigan prison is like. One guy came at me thinking I was going to be easy. They found him in the shower the next morning. I did what I had to do several times and they finally figured out I was not worth the effort of the trip to the ER. I learned fast and always had that ability to turn it on when needed. Now that brings us to 2004, and John was fortunate enough to have someone behind him supporting him when he walked out of prison. His sister Donna helped John out financially. She figured she'd get him back on his feet, steer him in the right direction, but an honest life wasn't in the cards. He immediately signed up for Match.com, looking for more victims. And when he moved in with Donna in Newport Beach, California, he spent most of his days looking for drugs, not showing up for the job his sister had given him at her real estate office. He was back to his old ways, looking for his next con, his next fix. One question that keeps popping up for me, did John Meehan have any good in him? Was there any part of him that cared for others? We'll continue to revisit that question throughout the story, and some theories will be offered up. So he continued hunting down, luring and dating women, using them, manipulating them from 2005 to 2014. He utilized dating sites, lying about who he was. He would start off as charming and affectionate, 
He'd con his victims, first by courting them, showering them with compliments, affection, then winning their trust. Then he'd move on to manipulation, getting them to transfer their money into his account. In February 2014, John was charged with stalking and being a felon in possession of a firearm. His victim? A woman in Laguna Beach who had woken up from brain surgery in her hospital room to John Meehan standing over her bed saying he was her anesthesiologist. That's how they met. Their romance began but quickly soured when John's affection turned to rage when the woman refused to transfer her money over. He began to threaten her, and then he sent intimate photos of her to her own family. That was his M.O., rinse and repeat. But whenever it didn't go as planned, John would become hostile, threatening, writing vengeful emails, telling his prey that if she gave him her money, the problem would go away. He was relentless. He had put the time in. He wanted his payoff. When the woman called the police to report him, John's storage unit was searched, and in it there were weapons and cyanide powder. He was arrested and served time, and was released from jail in the summer of 2014, but ended up behind bars again after he violated the restraining order his victim had against him. And then, on October 8, 2014, John was released from jail, and that night, he signed up for the dating app, Our Time, a decision that would alter the course of many lives, leading to deadly results. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash method and madness. That's betterhelp.com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And I had looked at my childhood, you know, all the pain that I'd gone through and my marriages and or relationships. And I, you know, I went through a, a lot of pain. And I kept telling myself, okay, I've got to get through this to get to the other side, because I think that I go to flight and numbness more so than fight. It was October 2014 in California, Orange County, 
59-year-old Deborah Newell, a business owner, was single, successful, and a mother of four grown children, her oldest, Brandon, 37, followed by her daughters, Nicole, 35, Liz, 26, and her youngest, Tara, 23. Deborah was attractive, blonde, and owned Ambrosia Interior Design, which she had built into a multi-million dollar company over the course of 35 years. It was something she was proud of, as design had become a way of life for her, and she was looking for someone to share her life with, her love of travel, dining, the beach. She signed up on a dating app, Our Time, which is targeted at the 50-plus community. After creating and posting her profile, she was delighted to find that there were a number of men interested in getting to know her. But unfortunately, the reality was that in person, first dates weren't going well. Men who lied about their appearance or nice enough guys that Deborah just didn't have chemistry with. Deborah is kind, empathetic, a self-proclaimed people-pleaser. She was raised in a religious family to parents Wayne, a youth pastor and coach, and mom Arlene, a music teacher. Growing up, Deborah had health issues, being born without the tube that connects the bladder to the kidneys. She endured surgeries in childhood, told she probably wouldn't live to see 20, and persevered. She was taught to always see the good in others, to live the way that Jesus Christ preached. And as an adult, she carried those values with her close to her heart in her everyday interactions. Deborah truly hoped that her match was out there. She'd been married a few times already, but didn't let anything discourage her from finding love, even if it meant kissing a few frogs. In the book she wrote, Surviving Dirty John, Deborah describes the need to feel protected, a need that seemed to manifest itself after a particularly terrifying event when she was just 19 years old. A man broke into the home where she was staying with her older sister, 22-year-old Cindy, her husband, Billy, and their infant, Ben. Deborah was attacked by the intruder who attempted to sexually assault her before her brother-in-law came in and scared the stranger off. It was a close call, and the man was later found arrested and charged. Deborah was grateful, but the event stuck with her. How could it not? Had she nearly been murdered that day? That need for protection continued and was something she sought out in her romantic relationships. In order to understand a little more about Deborah and the dynamic of her family, let's go back a bit to the day that Deborah got life-altering, devastating news. It was March 8, 1984, and Deborah's sister, Cindy, had been going through a rocky divorce with her husband, Billy. Deborah and Cindy had grown apart, which turned out to be a result of Billy isolating her from her loved ones. He was critical, manipulative, toxic. But after the two separated, Cindy sought comfort in her younger sister, who became her support system. 
She leaned on Deb as she navigated custody discussions and the selling of the house that the couple shared. And Cindy finally began to feel free, comfortable enough to talk about Billy's abuse. With the divorce pending, it was time to move on. Cindy met and began dating Hall of Fame running back Marcus Allen. After years of an abusive marriage and hiding her pain and fear from her family, she was opening up, feeling happy again, ready to put her ex behind her. With Cindy dating Marcus, Deborah was introduced to some of his friends, including O.J. Simpson, who asked her out. Deb declined, but they did remain friends for a bit. And then on Thursday, March 8th, 1984, Cindy was at home, seated at a desk, writing checks and paying bills. It was the day that the selling of the couple's home was to be finalized. She sat there, busily taking care of finances, no idea what was coming. As her husband Billy, gun in his hand, walked up behind her and pulled the trigger. Cindy was shot in the back of the neck and died instantly. Billy then turned the gun on himself, pulled the trigger a second time, but he survived. It was undoubtedly a tragic moment in time for Deborah. And soon, that devastation led to confusion. As she listened to her mother, Arlene, declaring that not only did she still love her son-in-law, but she'd be supporting him during his trial. You see, Deborah's parents had always believed in the good of others, and it was Arlene's faith that guided her to the witness stand at Billy's trial. She truly believed that Billy had just snapped. It was a brutal trial. The victim was blamed, and Billy was acquitted of first- and second-degree murder, found guilty of manslaughter. He was sentenced to five years but served two years and nine months. None of it felt right to Deborah. She was sure her brother-in-law had just gotten away with premeditated murder. And although she loved her mother, she was baffled at the amount of support she had given Billy, her sister's murderer. She didn't let it affect her relationship with Arlene, but it does speak to the dynamic of the family and how forgiveness was paramount. In recent years, as Deborah has healed from her own trauma, she's come to understand more about what her sister Cindy went through and how Billy had used a technique on her, that technique known as coercive control. After yet another so-so first date, Deborah was ready to give up on the Our Time dating app until she came across an intriguing profile. It was the profile of John Meehan, Dr. John Meehan, handsome, 55 years old, six foot two, a dog owner. Deborah was instantly attracted. He checked so many boxes. He was successful, had served time in Afghanistan and Iraq, and was a father of two, married once and divorced. And perhaps the best part, that he adored his dog, something super important to Deborah and her children, especially her youngest, Tara. John seemed perfect. And so it began. Deborah and John exchanged messages and photos, and after a few friendly conversations on the phone, agreed to have their first date. John met Deborah at her penthouse at Marquis Park Place, a high-rise condominium in a walkable neighborhood in Irvine, California. 
He was invited inside, and the two met face-to-face for the first time. John also met Deborah's daughter, Liz, who lived there with her. After chatting over a glass of wine, John and Deborah walked over to Houston's, a restaurant on Mickelson Drive with cozy booths, outdoor patio seating, and a menu that offered sushi, burgers, steaks, salads, with cocktails and wine offerings by the glass or bottle. John was a gentleman holding open doors the whole nine yards, so he didn't exactly dress to impress in his casual beachy attire, but Deborah was quickly becoming smitten. And the two clicked, no awkward silences or red flags in the conversation, none of that typical first-date cringe. And John seemed so carefree, an anesthesiologist who had worked with Doctors Without Borders, an international medical aid provider. Deborah couldn't believe her luck. Here was a potential partner that she'd been hoping for, two adults with established careers coming together. There was chemistry, good conversation. After drinks and a light dinner, Deborah invited John back to her penthouse, and she admits she didn't think anything of the request. She knew her intentions. She didn't sleep with men on a first date. She really just wanted the conversation to continue. And with John being so gentlemanly, it didn't occur to her that she'd have anything to worry about. Here she is, talking about that first date and what happened at the end of the night. And he had children. He had daughters. So he could relate to me. So, and just everything flowed. He asked questions and I was able to ask questions, but I felt like everything about the date, and it was three, or three, three and a half hours long. And I thought, here we go. I, I feel good about this one. I could see myself with him. Uh, but then we went back to my place. I lived in a penthouse um, right pretty close to where we had walked to dinner and walked back. And so went up was home. I invited him in. And in the meantime, I said, I'm going to go freshen up, went into the restroom, came back out, glanced over, and there he is on my bed. And I thought, oh, no, 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 we're not going there. (laughs) Not yet. That's not, that's not my thing. I want to get to know you a lot more. And so he looked at me and he said, but it feels so good. And I'm thinking, okay, it's just a bed. (laughs) I don't know what the big deal is. And anyway, he got mad at me. Deborah describes John as being so cool and calm, easygoing, and that put her at ease. But now he was on her bed, patting the mattress in that nonverbal invitation for her to join him. And she was shocked at the turn of events. How did a nice night with John end up like this? How did it go from not even making a move on her all night to taking it upon himself to not only go into her bedroom while she was in the other room, but to lay on her bed and expect she'd join him? Deborah was polite but firm. She told him she was not that kind of woman. And what happened next is described in Deborah's book, quote, John's face changed to one of venomous disappointment. Without another word, he hopped off the bed. I could tell he was angry, not upset or mad, but on the verge of rage. I'm fucking out of here, he said, not looking at me. I stepped out of the doorway. John stomped past me, 
opened the door, and left. Here's more from Laura Richards on coercive control. The abuser replaces the victim's inner narrative and thoughts with their own. Gradually, the victim's voice is eroded and replaced with the abuser's narrative, their views, needs, desires, wants, which is placed above all else. Love Bombing and Charm Deborah was puzzled, confused. How did the night turn so abruptly into that? She couldn't make sense of it and decided she wasn't going to see John again. And side note, what she knows now that she hadn't known then, John had just gotten out of prison, so of course he found her bed comfortable. Makes sense now, doesn't it? Anyway, the next day she talked to her daughter Nicole about the date and how it had quickly gone sour. Nicole told mom, forget him. He had shown her who he was. Deborah went on with her day, buried herself in her work, as she always did. And around lunchtime, she got a text from John. Um, and he says, you know what? I blew it. I wanted every moment with you, and I didn't want it to end. And I just, he goes, there's something about you that just makes me so happy and makes me feel so good. And, you know, all those words, um, my, my love language is words of affirmation mm-hmm. and affection. And as I'm listening to it, I'm like softening. And I said, okay, I'll give you a second chance. Um, and so obviously I gave him a second chance. Having spoken with Deborah, I can attest that she is one of the kindest, gentlest people I've ever met. She is very easy to talk to, and giving John a second chance isn't surprising to me. She believed he was sorry. Three days later, the two went on their second date, and as promised, John didn't cross any boundaries. He was again a complete gentleman, the gentleman that Deborah had seen during the majority of their first date. He started talking about love at first sight. More dates followed, and John was everything Deborah had hoped he was, this handsome doctor that wanted to be with her, that told her how beautiful she is, would kiss her hand as a sign of affection, pay for dinners, take her to listen to live jazz, romantic walks, handwritten notes. It was a dream. Because he seemed to just act very in love with me from the start. He was telling me pretty early on he had fallen in love at first sight that he had never met anyone like me. I mean, everything, you know, obviously a lot of red flags, <laughs> but at the same time, it feel it feels good. Sure. And he was, what can I do for you today? I just want to make your life easier. And he was picking flowers. Uh, when he come meet me for a date, um, he had love letters. Uh, he just, he rubbed my back. I mean, everything that you can get that makes you fall in love. Um, he was doing, he knew how to manipulate me. Right. So, and little did I know what red flags were. I, you know, the obvious, but you don't realize charming is a red flag. You don't realize moving so fast is a red flag. 
because you're thinking, oh, he fell in love with me. Love at first sight, I guess it does happen. Um, so I guess for me, I wasn't looking beyond how it felt. And it, and there is something called love bombing, and that's what he did. Two weeks after they met, they found themselves spending every day together, and the romance didn't dwindle. John started asking Deborah to marry him every day, multiple times a day. It even turned out that John went to the same church as Deborah, Mariners, which is described on its website as, quote, a community of ordinary people from all walks of life courageously trusting Jesus to do the extraordinary. The pair started attending church services together. At this point, the only thing that struck Deborah as slightly curious was that John was, for an anesthesiologist, very available. He seemed to have a lot of time on his hands, which was noticeable because he spent so much time at her home. But he had an explanation for everything. And he said that he was freelancing. So he was working for different doctors. So he would tell me about his whole um, case that he had that day uh, and what happened, you know, the whole work. So it was so believable. It was amazing. And he would say, yeah, I'm going to go work for Dr. Furman or whoever it may be. And I put this person to sleep and their veins were too small or they were overweight and it was really a challenge, you know, and he knew every single thing to say and the terminology. It was amazing. She never saw his home or homes he said he owned too, because one was being rented out and the other, according to John, was a mess due to an unsavory roommate. But none of this registered necessarily as a red flag. And although he wasn't the best dresser, that didn't bother Deborah so much, but she did start noticing. He would usually show up to dates wearing his scrubs, dirty scrubs, and that his hands didn't look like the hands of a doctor, more like a car mechanic. Deborah described to me how one of John's tactics was to earn her trust. He would take care of day-to-day chores and tasks, make it so that she relied on him. And so what they also do is they start building um, your trust. Um, What they do is they make it look like you can trust them with everything that they're going to help you. And you depend on this. Um, He said, you know, your car, I'm going to take it in. I'm going to get it fixed for you. I think it needs an oil change or your tires are low. And so he would be literally coming over and cleaning my cars for me. And at the time, I think I had two cars. And so he goes, you take that one to work, and I'll take this one and get things done. And by the way, I can do your bills for you. Um, Anything you need done, I'm going to check into this, you know, and that. Take your dry cleaning in. Uh, Whatever it was, he was on top of it, and it was making my life so much easier. And that's part of the the manipulation. That's yes. What, it's almost yep. like it's almost like they took a course. They they know exactly what to do. Oh, they're oh yeah. It's such a manipulation. It's called trust dependency, and that's pretty much step two to trauma bonding.
isolation. Here's more from Laura Richards on coercive control. The behaviors can be very different in each case because it depends on the victimology. It's very idiosyncratic to the victim and tailor-made as a plan to target them. And it can happen to anyone. These behaviors can include strategies such as pseudo-caring tactics that appear to be attentive and thoughtful, while in reality, the perpetrator is actually just micromanaging the victim and limiting their space for action. They may appear super attentive and into the victim in the beginning, but all the while, they may be social engineering and data mining and storing up information about the intended victim or creating an atmosphere of codependence. When we understand coercive control, it's really about utter domination. The person like, oh, this person isn't right for you. This person is saying mean things to you. This person's doing this. Are you sure you want to be friends with them? Um, And he was saying to my mom, like, oh, your kids just want your money. Your kids are doing this. Your kids don't love you and so on. So, you know, he was really trying to get my mom isolated and alone where he's able to have more control over her in this situation. That's Tara, Deborah's youngest daughter, who was 23 at the time her mom started dating John. Really, there was only one thing in Deborah's mind that was invading the dream, the perfect courtship, and that was Deborah's children weren't head over heels for John like she was. They didn't see him the same way she did. So the first time he had met my daughter, uh, my middle daughter, and she immediately didn't like him. But again, you've got to remember that she didn't like anyone. So I'm assuming she's going to get to know him and she's going to like him eventually. Liz, quite frankly, didn't like John. Remember, Liz was living with Deborah in the condo at the time, so she had plenty of interactions with the new man in her mom's life. And John simply rubbed her the wrong way. He was creepy, nosy, even asking Liz what she kept in a safe that was in the home. She gave Deb an ultimatum. Either John had to go or she would. Deborah knew that sooner or later she'd end up living with John, as long as things kept going as good as they were. She'd even probably marry him. So she found a waterfront house on Balboa Island in Newport Beach and rented it while Liz stayed back in the condo. Deborah couldn't let John move in right away. Her kids would throw a fit, but she knew he'd be over a lot, and she was looking forward to the time with him. He refused to let Deborah put his name on the lease, saying vaguely that it would cause tax issues. He didn't officially move in, but kept a few things at the house, telling Deborah all of his belongings had been stolen while he was over in Iraq. Among the things that John had brought with him to the Balboa home were some personal papers, things you'd keep in a box in a closet— Deborah came across one thing that piqued her curiosity. It was a certificate that said John was a licensed nurse, something he hadn't mentioned and didn't make sense for a doctor to have. When she asked him about it, he told her that was the process to become an anesthesiologist. First, you had to go for your nursing degree. He quickly changed the subject. In typical John fashion, pivoting to how he couldn't wait to marry Deborah for her to make him the happiest man on earth. Meanwhile, Liz was talking to her siblings, telling them about her own personal feelings for John. She didn't think he was a doctor or who he said he was. He always looked sloppy, dirty even. 
mostly wore the same dirty scrubs, which Deborah waved off as he'd told her all of his belongings were stolen, but Liz wasn't buying it. This didn't seem to her like a successful doctor, so she started walking past the Balboa home when Deb was at work, just to see what John was up to. And what was he up to? Well, he's spending a lot of time on the couch playing Call of Duty. And so a pattern emerged of Deborah defending her boyfriend to her kids and her kids unable to shake the uneasy feeling that John wasn't who he said he was. Confronting their mom about their feelings, Deborah telling John, you get the idea. And John didn't take the comments lightly. He didn't seem too interested in winning Deborah's kids over. Instead, he started planting seeds in Deb's head, insinuating and then flat out accusing her kids of just wanting her money. And John was just getting in the way of that money. Those sort of accusations angered Deborah. She insisted John was wrong, that her kids were raised to be honest, hard workers, and that they were only looking out for her. And Deb sort of chalked it up to her kids not liking most of the men she had dated. She was optimistic. Sooner or later, they'd see John as she saw him, the funny, charming man that took such good care of her. So when Thanksgiving of 2014 rolled around, it was only natural that this would be the perfect time for the family to come together and see the real John and to see how happy he was making Deborah. Deb's youngest daughter, Tara, was living in Vegas at the time with her boyfriend, Tony. The mother and daughter talked frequently, and Deb would drive out and visit Tara as often as she could. The two were close, and Deborah knew that Tara would definitely be taking notes when she met John, seeing how he measured up. It wasn't that Deborah's kids were just quick to judge. It's that they had witnessed some of their mother's previous relationships and were very protective. She, in Tara's words, didn't always have the best picker. Here's Tara elaborating. Well, she just didn't have the best picker. So we didn't really like a lot of the guys. And a lot of the guys that she dated were because my mom was an empath too. So she tend to attract these narcissist figures, these um, sociopath figures, just like these figures in her life that wanted to take advantage of her kindness and so on. So my mom or my sister and I were very highly critical of these men because we saw a routine pattern of these men taking advantage of her. And so we became very protective over my mom. And one of the ways is where we would always like kind of tell her, um, that's a really kind way to say it, um, <laughs> that we didn't like them, you know? Right. And then it got to the point where, you know, she said that you didn't like anybody. So she just figured that when she brought John home, it was just one of those situations again. Well, they don't like anybody. So let's rephrase that. I (laughs) like the guys that she didn't like. Tara and Tony arrived at the Balboa house a few days before Thanksgiving. They were going to stay there for the holiday. Tara's beloved pups in tow. Tara's introduction to John didn't get off to a fabulous start. She was willing to give John a chance, despite what her siblings had told her. Still, Deb braced herself for what may come, her being stuck in the middle, her children versus her boyfriend. 
They all met at the condo, where Deborah was still moving some things out to bring over to the Balboa house. Tara and Tony were inside the penthouse with the dogs. John was outside loading things into the car. Before their formal introduction, Tara couldn't help but notice that her dogs seemed off, anxious, as they circled around the condo, pacing, and then John came in from outside. You know how they always say dogs can sense evil? Well, they seemed to sense something in John's presence. When Tara saw John enter, she greeted him, but he only responded with a nod, like he was holding a childish grudge against Deb's kids for talking behind his back. Tony politely asked if they could help with the move, but John refused, and outside, he struggled to get a queen-sized mattress on top of Deb's car, adamant that he didn't need help. A bizarre, almost comical scene that Tara and Tony watched in bewilderment. The foursome went out to eat that night, and Tara seemed like she was warming up to John, a relief for Deb, as she watched the two of them chat about different medical topics, Tara interested in his expertise as a doctor. So she definitely was giving him a chance, as promised, but Tara couldn't help but shake that feeling, that same feeling that something was just off about John Meehan. One question I wanted to ask was um, something we had touched on earlier was the way you sort of saw John when you were meeting him and how you sort of felt in a room with him, even figuratively. What was your take on how your mom felt around him? When you saw her, what was the vibe you got? Doting over him. Doting. You know, when you're in that beginning stage and you're just like, oh, you're getting all these good hormones, the oxytocin and your serotonin levels are on point, you know, or they're better than ever, you know, you're getting all these good feelings. Later that night, the situation turned when Tara saw that John had been keeping some items in her mom's home. Had he moved in? Was everything Liz had told her true that this guy had ulterior motives? Was her mom lying to her? Tara was angry and upset and confronted Deb about what she'd found, but was assured that John was only keeping a few things there, like the typical toothbrush, change of clothes, etc., that you do when you're serious with a new partner. This confrontation led to a bit of a screaming match between John and Tara, and Deb calmed her down, told John she'd handle things. But she was surprised at Tara's reaction. This wasn't a side of her youngest daughter she'd seen before. But what Deb was seeing was love, this perfect man. What her kids were seeing, what they were sensing, was something darker. Creating Dependency Tara told her mom she suspected John was doing drugs, that he seemed high. She had known people that would visit the ER and knew exactly what to say to get the right drugs. She suspected that was what John was doing. But Deborah trusted John implicitly and responded that he did have some pain in his back and in his arm from his duty in Iraq, issues that required pain management and visiting the ER to get the issues addressed. What Deb didn't know was that Tara was absolutely right, and that later it would be revealed that John had an addiction to several prescription drugs, including Adderall, OxyContin, and Ambien. While they discussed Tara's concerns, John was listening in, 
Here is an excerpt from Deb's book. Hey, listen to me, you little shit, he said to Tara. You just want her all to yourself. You won't give me a chance. I know what's going on here. You and Liz don't want to see your mother happy. As you can imagine, this didn't go over well with Tara, and another loud shouting match ensued, which Deb put an end to, resulting in Tara storming out. She was angry, upset, and felt like her mom was choosing her boyfriend over her, which may have been something she'd just have to get over if John was actually a decent person. But Tara just knew. Deborah just wasn't seeing it. Later, Liz got several alarming texts from her mom, including one that had said, kill yourself. Had Deb gone off the deep end? No. John was sneaking her cell and texting her kids, then deleting the conversations. Deborah talks about how it was all chaos, her kids against John and John against her kids, and all she wanted was to be a peacemaker. And the only one on her side? Arlene, her mother. She loved John. While Deborah's kids were adamant there was something off, John was bringing up the subject of marriage to Deborah daily. He wanted it all, to move into the beach house she'd rented, to get married, and he told Deb that once they were married, her kids would be convinced that he was a good guy. It was one day during the holiday season of 2014 when Deborah finally agreed she would marry John, but she felt that sinking feeling in her gut immediately after saying yes. It was a casual engagement, and Deb didn't tell her kids. She was still trying to figure out how to navigate her relationship with John. She was hoping for a Christmas where everyone could get along, but that was never going to happen, no matter how optimistic she was. One day that December, a frightening encounter occurred, one that would prompt changes to Deborah's day-to-day and give John an upper hand. John and Deborah went to church together, and when they returned home, found a woman in the house. She was sitting in a chair, drinking a cup of Ovaltine. Her hair was wet. She was wearing Deborah's clothes. Deb describes in her book having an immediate physical reaction as she recalled the moment she was nearly raped and killed decades earlier. The woman seemed homeless, probably mentally ill, but harmless, and Deb didn't want to press charges once the police were called. She describes in the book how John reacted while police were on their way. He had the woman's head pushed onto the countertop in the kitchen. He must have grabbed her out of the chair and muscled her into the other room. He held her hands behind her back. What the fuck do you think you're doing? He said through clenched teeth. The cops are on the way. The look on his face. It was not someone scared or enraged by an intruder. I had a fleeting sense, easily overpowered by my fear within the situation, that John was acting. The woman was taken away by the police, and John whispered something to her as she was escorted out of the house. Deb later asked John if he knew the woman, which he of course denied. There was something about the experience that seemed fake, but at the same time, she felt violated— Someone had broken her skylight and entered her home and worn her clothes. It was horrible, but John was there to protect her and be the hero of the day. He insisted after that incident that they buy cameras, installing them in the home and even in Deborah's office and warehouse. It was a little overwhelming. She felt like someone was always watching. And she was absolutely right. Right. 
Had John somehow arranged the break-in? Had he paid someone to do it in order to convince Deborah to put in cameras? Deb admits these ideas crossed her mind, but she was afraid to find out if she was right. Afraid that this image of John, this fantasy, would disappear into a harsh reality. She knows it sounds like she was naive or delusional, but this is what she calls the blueprint of her DNA. And John was relying on that. He was using yet another tactic, another tool in his manipulation to make Deb question herself, question that voice deep down. It was just before Christmas that John joined Deborah on a business trip to Nevada. The two enjoyed romantic dinners in Vegas, and with a lot of prodding and pleading and more love bombing, John got Deborah to agree she'd marry him, then and there. Their wedding was in a Vegas chapel, and Deb kept ignoring the little voice. She made John swear he wouldn't tell anyone. She needed time to tell her family, her kids. It was too late for a prenup, which Deb had planned on arranging, so now the plan was to do a post-nup. But with work and the holidays, she never did get around to it. Deb was seeing a therapist at the time. She had been going for some months, working through some physical, emotional, and overall internal healing. It was after her wedding to John that she began coming to terms with the help of therapy that John had worn her down. She wasn't just a thrilled bride. She was consumed with guilt and anxiety, but still hopeful that with time— things would all work out. Deb knows how this sounds, that she was putting marriage first. She was ignoring red flags. She gets it. She knows people will judge. Hell, I remember first hearing all of this back then and when the story was emerging and wondering how she didn't see it, how her kids saw it, but she didn't. It's easy to look at the case of Dirty John and speculate how we'd act in that situation. Oh, I would never. Or I would have seen it coming from a mile away. How did Deborah not see it? Not seeing it is exactly what John was expecting. Remember, we know now what Deborah didn't know then. So there's that. But also, John was a predator. He was preying on women exactly like Deb. They had to be successful. I mean, he had to benefit in some way financially. And they had to be naive and trusting. Once that first meeting took place and John used his charm, the rest was easy. Now that John had successfully isolated Deborah from her children, everything was falling right into place and right according to his plan. Christmas was a disaster, family-wise. Deborah didn't want conflict. She told her children not to come if they were planning on making a scene, so they didn't. Tara, however, stopped by her mom's house to spend time with her nieces and nephews with the agreement that John would keep his distance. But he did not and that tension that was building bubbled over, erupted. Tara and I talked about what she thinks John didn't count on. So I wonder if my mom, he thought could have been like his narcissist dream and just kept giving him the supply of money. And so in that he's kind of able to pull one over on and go do his thing with other ladies and do it here because like my mom always worked and he was able to weasel around that. So I wondered if he thought that this would just be a target that could give me a supply of what I need for so long. Um, but then he probably didn't expect her kids to be so um, territorial. 
After Christmas 2014, things in Deborah's family went from bad to worse, as Liz and Tara decided they didn't want to be around their mom as long as John was in the picture. And a lot more was about to be revealed about Deborah's new husband. All of the gut feelings her kids had would be confirmed. And it was all far worse than anyone had imagined. Deb's children, with the help of Nicole's husband, Scotty, hired a P.I. to look into John. And while that was going on, things were beginning to unravel in the new marriage. Deborah describes how things John had told her previously started to change. It started little things, like how long he lived in Newport Beach, five years and then three years, to the home he owned in Palm Springs. Sounded like a beautiful desert home, but then became a mobile home in a trailer park. The amount of time he had spent in Iraq seemed to change frequently, 12 months, 18 months, or was it 15? And Deborah was shocked to learn he killed five men in Iraq. How did that make sense? Hadn't John been working for Doctors Without Borders? But any time she questioned her husband, he would turn it around on her that she was wrong, she misheard, she'd misremembered, and she was bringing up painful memories. One of my favorite lines in Deb's book about this whole Iraq thing is as follows, quote, How was it that a doctor working for Doctors Without Borders had been put in a position to kill five people inside a war zone? Was John now telling me he was Rambo? The discrepancies didn't end there, and they only got stranger. Coming up next on Method and Madness. It was just pretty intense, to be honest, because... I felt like John was following me and John was stalking me, but I could never confirm it. And I just felt like I was going crazy because I was looking for something that I could not see. And I was just living in this constant state of fear. Well, and then also, too, I was saying that he was going to kill me. And for me to say that, it's like very dramatic, you know what I mean? And But it's the truth. He wanted to kill me. And I got those vibes right from the moment I met him. I was like, he doesn't want me here. He wants me out. All the truth comes out and John's dangerous side is revealed as Deborah goes into hiding. And finally, a violent attack in a parking lot, puts an end to the terror and starts a long road to healing. Thank you so much for listening to Method and Madness. It's an independent podcast. If you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Moen Spo. Thank you to Deborah and Tara Newell for coming on and sharing your stories. Thanks to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.